If you've been a parent for more than 17 minutes, you will realize that what you think is best for your kids is often not what your kids think is best for your kids. For instance, if most kids were left to themselves for a week with no parental involvement, they would probably eat nothing but Twinkies and pizza and Frosted Flakes. And they would only drink one thing, chocolate milk. Now, if you have teenage boys, they'd probably sleep in till noon every day and play video games the rest of the day. How do I know? I have five boys. But my boys are always busy reading their Bibles and praying early in the morning, not sleeping in. I'm being facetious. Why do kids love to do these things? Why do kids love to eat junk food and play video games and sleep in? Because they believe that doing these things will lead to genuine happiness. But again, parents understand that a steady diet of junk food and chocolate milk and video games is not going to lead to happiness or human flourishing. Parents know better than kids what kids need. In a similar sense, adults are just like kids. We often think that certain things will make us happy, money and success and fame. Even though God knows far better what our souls need, which brings us to our passage this morning. The crowds work hard to find Jesus because they thought that what they really needed from Jesus was bread. If they could just get some bread from Jesus, they thought, we'll be happy. But Jesus knew so much better. Jesus knew that what they really needed was not bread, physical bread, bread you eat, but what they really needed more than anything else in the world is the bread of life, which only Jesus can provide. Here's the main point of our passage this morning. You and I must work hard to satisfy our souls with the bread of life because nothing else will satisfy. Now, to help us understand this passage this morning, we're going to look at two subjects or two headings. The first is work, and the second is satisfaction. Work and satisfaction. First is work. Work is mentioned several times in verses 25 to 29. For instance, the crowd worked really hard to try to get stuff from Jesus. A little bit of context here is important. The day before our passage, Jesus supernaturally feeds 5,000 family units. As a result, they all want to make him king. They rush to make him a political ruler. But knowing it wasn't his time yet to be king, he escapes, he flees the crowd, goes up to a mountain and prays, and in the middle of the night, he comes down the mountain, walks across the water, meets the disciples in the boat, they're terrified, they go to the other side of the lake, and now it's the following day. And the crowds realize that Jesus is gone, and so they work really hard to find him. They go all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and they eventually encounter Jesus. Why? Because they want more bread. Verse 25, the crowd says, ask Jesus, Rabbi, when did you get here to this spot by the Sea of Galilee? Verse 26, Jesus answers and says, truly, truly, 
I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus says, you didn't work hard to find me because you understand that I'm the long-awaited Messiah who has come to save you from your sins. Rather, you worked really hard to find me because you want bread from me. That's why you worked hard to find me. You just want stuff. Pastor Kenneth Copeland's net worth is just shy of $1 billion. He has a private airfield, a private jet, fancy cars, and he lives in a fancy mansion. Nigerian pastor David Oedipo has a net worth of $150 million, making him the wealthiest pastor in Nigeria. Pastor Creflo Dollar, real name, owns two Rolls Royces, a private jet, a million-dollar home in Atlanta, and a multi-million-dollar home in Manhattan. I'll never forget watching Pastor Joel Osteen on TV several years ago, and he, he went like this. He said, God, you're, you're asking God to give you the golf club, but God wants to give you the golf club. Like the entire course and the clubhouse and the restaurant and everything. Joel Osteen, like the rest of these guys, is a proponent of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. These guys teach essentially that Jesus is basically there to give you stuff. If you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy, healthy, and wise, and maybe get a golf club someday. Not a golf club. You guys got that, right? I thought it was kind of clever. The crowd just wants bread. These prosperity preachers just want stuff from Jesus. Just like the crowd back in John 6. Now it's easy for us to criticize the false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And it should be criticized. But I think if we're honest, there's a little bit of prosperity gospel inside of all of us. What do I mean? Some churchgoers go to Jesus because they want Jesus to merely fix their problems. They think, if God would just fix my marriage, if God would just fix my career, if God would just fix my body, if God would just give me a sense of psychological well-being, if God would just give me a sense of purpose in life, then I'll love him and I'll serve him. Now, don't get me wrong. God can do all those things for us, and we should bring our problems to God. He is eager and willing to help us with our problems. But if all we want from God is for God to just fix our problems, it's just like the crowd. God, just give me some bread. Every parent wants their kid to love them, not because of what they give their kids, but because of who they are. And God is no different. And again, God is eager to fix our problems, and God is able to fix our problems, but why are we primarily going to Jesus? Why do we primarily love Jesus? Usually, it kind of works like this. Younger Christians, immature Christians, they, they are super thankful 
and they should be, that God has forgiven all their sins. They rejoice, and we should rejoice. But eventually, over time, they begin to love Jesus more and more and more for his moral beauty and his character, which is seen primarily in the cross. Which raises the question, why do you go to Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? Because he does things for you or because he's incredibly glorious and majestic and beautiful and loving and kind and gracious and merciful? Jesus wants us to love him for who he is, first and foremost. The crowd worked hard to get stuff from Jesus. In addition, the crowd worked hard for perishable things. They work hard to get stuff from Jesus, and they worked hard for perishable things. Verse 26 and 27, John writes, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, don't work hard for the stuff that will not last, for the food that only perishes. Don't wear yourself out, Jesus says, to acquire material things like food and fast cars and bigger houses. Material things perish. As a result, they never ultimately satisfy. In the late 1930s, the most famous author alive was William Somerset Maugham. He was an accomplished novelist, a great playwright, and a popular short story writer. He was basically the John Grisham or the Daniel Steele of the day. His books sold in the millions, making him a very, very wealthy man. In 1965, Somerset Mom was 91 years old and fabulously wealthy. Royalties continued to pour in from all over the globe as his books continued to sell. Even at age 90, his fame was on the upsurge. He was receiving 300 letters a week at age 90. Um, praising his literary works. He was experiencing incredible success. He lived in a spectacular mansion uh, on the Mediterranean, worth millions. He had the best cars, the nicest clothes. He had 11 servants. He had a cook that all the other millionaires in the Riviera envied. He worked really hard for perishable things, and he obtained all the things that so many of us want. But towards the end of his life, he said these words to his nephew. I've been a failure the whole way through my life. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. I wish I'd never written a single word. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure. Somerset Mom worked really hard for success, for perishable things, and they never, ever, ever satisfied. He had it all, and it all left him broken, empty, 
depressed, and eventually suicidal. We too often get stuck in the trap of thinking that if I acquire certain things, I'll be satisfied. If I could just make a little more money, if I could just lose a little bit of weight, if I could just have a little more vacation time, then my soul will be satisfied. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Isaiah is arguing with us. Do not work hard for things that won't satisfy when God offers himself to you free of charge. Delight yourself in him, says Isaiah. Now, it's not wrong to work hard and to have nice things, but nice things were never ever meant to ultimately satisfy us. So the crowd worked to get stuff from Jesus. The crowd worked for perishable things. In addition, the crowd worked to earn salvation. Look with me at verse 28. Then they said to him, that is Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? When the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They are asking the age-old question, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be made right with you, God? Someone once said that religion is spelt with two letters, D-O, do. If you do certain things, if you do the right things and avoid doing the wrong things, then God will love you and accept you. Muslims obey the five pillars. Orthodox Jews must obey the entire Old Testament laws. Hindus must earn enough good karma to free themselves from the cycle of reincarnation. Buddhists must understand the four noble paths, truths, and carefully follow the eightfold path. Roman Catholics have their version of do's and don'ts. So do Mormons, and so do evangelicals. Evangelicals often think, if I just read my Bible enough and pray enough and give enough and serve enough, then hopefully, finally, God will love me and accept me. Religion is spelled do, D-O, and you can never do enough to please God. But Christianity is spelled with four letters, D-O-N-E, done. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary. And when I say everything, I mean everything. He was born, lived a perfect life, suffered and died on the cross for your sins, and rose from the grave. Therefore, all you have to do to be made right with God is believe. That's it. That's the scandal of Christianity. We simply believe, and God accepts us. He receives us. Which brings us to verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. The crowds want to know, Jesus, what kind of work do we have to do to be made right with you? And Jesus says, there's only one type of work for you to do. And that work is simply the work of believing. That's it. That's the work. You don't have to go to a holy place, light candles, memorize chants, read your Bible, go to church, clean up your life. You don't have to do anything because Jesus Christ has done it all. And the primary work that we do as Christians is believe. When we believe, we are made right with God. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And this separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Grace makes Christianity unique, utterly unique. Now, you're probably thinking, Dave, we know this. <laughs> We've been here a while. You've mentioned this a few times before. But are you living like this is true? Or are you stuck in the good day, bad day syndrome? On your good days, you get up early, read your Bible, pray, you lead your family in family worship. On the way to work, you pray the whole time. When you get to work, you evangelize three of your friends, you serve your boss, you work with excellence for God's glory. You come home that night and you serve your wife, you bring her flowers, by the way. Then that evening, you have devotions again, twice in one day. And you're thinking to yourself, I bet God's glad that I'm on his team. I mean, I'm pretty good at this Christianity thing. And those days you feel this incredible sense of closeness and nearness to God. Then the next day is a whole different story. You sleep in till 10, don't read the Bible. On the way to work, you cut someone off and they swear at you. You swear at them. You leave work early because you're mad at your boss. You get home and yell at your wife, skip devotions, end up watching reruns of some show until one o'clock in the morning. And that day, you feel like God's a million miles away. You think, how in the world could God love me after how I performed today? But the reality is, no matter what you've done, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, he sees you as righteous, as perfect. You're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're justified, you're adopted. You're a child of God on your worst day and your best day. Are you living like that's true? If not, I'm gonna keep preaching this message again and again and again. Because I'm just like you. I fall off the wagon several times a week. And I think that if I just perform a little more, God's gonna love me and accept me a little more. And that, my friends, is not just contrary to the gospel, it's hostile to the gospel. Because that mentality assumes that what Christ did for you wasn't quite enough. You're trying to help him out a little bit, which is incredibly presumptuous and arrogant. As Christians, we must repent of our bad deeds and our good deeds done to earn God's favor. When we do the work of believing, something 
amazing happens. Which brings us to the next concept. First is the work, and second is the satisfaction. We need to understand a few things about the satisfying bread described in John 6. Like what? Consider the identity of the satisfying bread. John 6, 30 to 35, so they said to him, speaking to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In the previous verses, Jesus made the audacious claim that the only work God requires of us is to believe. So naturally, the Jewish crowd asked him, give us a sign to prove that what you're saying is trustworthy, reliable, and true, and possibly from God. And they specifically request a sign like the sign that Moses performed in roughly 1440 B.C. when he, by God's grace, provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. Remember that story? We have millions of Israelites wandering in the desert with no food, about to starve to death. Moses prays, and God supernaturally provides this stuff called manna that sustains them for years. It was a miracle. Now, I'm sure at this point, Jesus was tempted to say, are you serious? You want a sign like the sign of Moses? Weren't you there yesterday? Yesterday, I supernaturally provided bread in the wilderness, just like Moses, for 5,000 family units. Wasn't that sign enough to prove to you that what I'm saying is from God? In other words, Jesus could have said, don't you see that I'm the new Moses? I am the one to lead you out of slavery to sin, sustain you with the bread of life, and lead you to the eternal promised land. Moses was always meant to point us to Jesus. In the book of Exodus, Moses parted the waters, went up on a mountain, and then provided bread from heaven. In John 6, Jesus walks on the waters after coming down from the mountain, and then he provides bread from heaven. Is this a coincidence? No! Jesus Christ is fulfilling what Moses established 1,500 years beforehand. Jesus is the true prophet. Not only, not only does he provide bread from heaven, but Jesus is the bread from heaven that satisfies our souls. And he makes this astonishing claim in verse 34 and 35. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying that physical bread is able to sustain your body. Physical bread nourished Israel in the wilderness. But he's saying, I'm the bread of life. And I will sustain your soul, which is far more important than your body. Jesus is claiming 
very boldly to be the very bread of life himself. And by the way, this is the first of the seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Why are there seven sayings? Because it's the number of perfection. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. But here, he's saying very clearly that he is the bread of life. So he is the one who satisfies our souls. So that's the identity of the satisfying bread. But next is the nature of the satisfying bread. Verse 35 again, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These are incredibly encouraging words. Jesus says that whoever comes to him will never hunger and never thirst, ever. And again, he's talking there about the hunger and the thirst of our souls. Nothing but Jesus can satisfy our souls. And when we're feasting on Jesus, he promises to satisfy us completely. The best hunting trip must be followed by another hunting trip. The best vacation must be followed by another vacation. The best round of golf must be followed by more golf. Your best clothes will wear out. Your house and car will fall apart. Your career will eventually end. Your kids will grow up and leave the house. And your body will eventually break down. None of these things will satisfy us. One author writes, Summer said, Mom, dressed in his finest tuxedo, and night after night, played cards with the most famous people in all the world. Dukes and duchesses sought his favor. He had the most exclusive of parties, but he found no lasting satisfaction. C.S. Lewis said, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book which is long enough. In other words, he's saying, I can never ultimately be satisfied with the things of this world. God gives us things to enjoy. Praise God. But they're meant to be windows and not paintings. We're meant to look through them to God and to see God's goodness and God's kindness and God's generosity. He is the ultimate end in all the good things that he gives us. They point us back to him and his kindness, his provision, his love for us. They're not meant to be ends in themselves. Nothing but Christ can satisfy our souls. Now maybe you're thinking, I'm a Christian, but I've never really experienced that type of soul-satisfying relationship with Jesus that you're describing. Now to be very, very clear, one enters this relationship with Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone. The work we do is the work of believing. That's it. But we're not going to enjoy the relationship unless we cultivate that relationship. Isn't this how marriage works? If you're not actually talking to your spouse, spending time with your spouse, enjoying his or her company, are you going to enjoy the relationship? Of course not. In a similar sense, 
If you and I are truly going to enjoy this soul-satisfying relationship, we must cultivate it. Well, how do we do that? Through the ordinary means of grace. We read our Bibles, and we pray, and we engage in fellowship. Not because those things earn us favor with God. God has given us those things to maximize our joy in Him. When you read the Bible, don't do it to check a box. But read it because you want to experience more joy. A friend of mine used to end every Bible reading by saying, Lord, I thank you that what I just did did not make me any more righteous in your sight. But what I just did allowed me to experience the joy of knowing you. So we read the Bible and we pray and we come to church and we engage in fellowship and small group because we want to experience more and more and more of the soul-satisfying joy that only the bread of life offers. It only comes from one place, Jesus. But this relationship must be cultivated. Who gets to experience this relationship with God? Let's go back to verse 35. We've looked so far at the, the identity of the satisfying bread, the nature of the satisfying bread, and now the recipients of the satisfying bread. Again, John 35, 6, 35, and 36. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus says, whoever comes to him will be satisfied. Whoever. Notice that word, whoever. Which means you don't have to be rich or poor or black or white or unrighteous or righteous. Anyone who comes to Jesus can experience the soul-satisfying relationship of knowing him. It's available to anyone who decides to come and believe. And those two verbs are crucial. Jesus talks about coming to Christ and believing in Christ. Coming to Christ implies that we are moving in a direction. The Bible calls this repentance. We come to Jesus by letting go of our sin, turning away from our sin, and then embracing Jesus. And we believe in Christ by wholeheartedly trusting him. Belief is more than just affirming certain things are true about you and Jesus. Saving faith isn't just acknowledging certain things are true. Someone who's really believing or really trusting or who has real faith in Jesus, is willing to follow Christ wherever he leads. If you really believe that he loves you, that he died for you, that he removed all your sin, and that sin destroys, why in the world would you keep sinning? If you really believe those things, you're going to want to flee from sin. So we participate in this relationship by coming and by believing. Which raises the question, have you come to Christ and have you believed? And if not, why not? Nothing else in this world will satisfy your soul. No amount of money, no amount of promotions, no amount of fame, no amount of sex, no amount of popularity. 
Nothing but Jesus will satisfy your soul. So why in the world would you hang on to your sin and refuse to come to him? Maybe at this point you're thinking, well, Dave, I'm a Christian, but I have been looking to other things to satisfy my soul. What must I do? You must keep coming and keep believing. Martin Luther famously said that all of life is repentance. If you're a Christian, all of life is repenting. All of life is coming to Jesus again and again and again and saying, Jesus, forgive me for worshiping this idol, for looking to this thing to satisfy me. Would you please forgive me? Would you please change my heart? Would you help me believe all of your promises to me as your child? We do that over and over and over and over again as Christians. That's the Christian life. Admitting we're wrong, asking God to forgive us, asking God to change us, and embracing his free forgiveness. The Christian life is not complicated. It's repenting and believing, repenting and believing, repenting and believing. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And here's the good news. If you're coming to the triune God, he will never, ever, ever refuse you. No matter how many times you sin, if you keep going to him, repenting and believing, repenting and believing, he will keep forgiving you. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus suffered and died for every single one of your sins. All your sins. Your evil thoughts, evil words, and evil deeds. Past sins, present sins, future sins. All those sins were placed on Jesus, and he suffered and died on the cross in your place. Therefore, you can go to him again and again and again. And he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives, and he begins to slowly change us over time and wean us off of the things of this world. Let me conclude by asking you one question. What will you work hard on this week? In this passage, Jesus Christ encourages us to work hard at satisfying our souls with the bread of life. Nothing else satisfies. Let's pray together.